Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us on the Kirk Church Podcast. I'm Aaron Elmore, lead pastor at Kirk of the Hills, located in Tulsa, Oklahoma. This is where you can hear messages from all our pastors and guest speakers. Make sure to subscribe and share with anyone who follows the Kirk. If you want to know more about us, visit us at thekirk.com, like us on Facebook, or follow us on Instagram at the Kirk Church. Let's get started with today's episode. My name is Aaron, and I'm a first-time visitor here. I have no idea why they asked me to preach. Okay, that's not true. Uh, for those of you that forgot me or uh, have just started visiting here within the last few weeks, my name is Aaron Elmore, and I'm the lead pastor. Uh, I've just come off a two-month sabbatical, and uh, just, I'm just so grateful for that. I want to say thank you to the leadership and to you uh, all as a church for giving us, uh, our family, that gift. It was a wonderful time. And, uh, but I also missed you, and I missed being in worship with you, so I'm really glad to be here this morning. I'm hoping that preaching is a bit like riding a bike, in that rarely do you ever completely forget how to do it. If it's been a while, you might be a little wobbly, but you're likely, not likely to land flat on your face. I hope that's the case this morning. Imposter syndrome. Have you heard of it? It's the internal experience of believing that you're not as competent as people perceive you to be. So you feel like a fraud, like an imposter. People don't talk about the experience because part of the fear is you you fear you'll be found out. That people will find out that you're not actually uh, as good at your job or as good of a husband or wife or as good of a friend, uh, not as good at academics or, or whatever the case may be. People will find out that you're not as good. It's the fear of this. And, and it's not a recognized diagnosis, but psychologists and, and those in the field of social sciences recognize it's a very real experience. It's a form of intellectual self-doubt. I think we can all relate to it. We all have areas of our life where we feel like we don't measure up, like we're not competent, and we worry that people will find us out. There's, there's somewhere in your life where you feel this imposter syndrome, like a fraud, like you don't fit, you're not good enough. And I think that this idea can even come into our faith. I think that there can be times or seasons in our life when we feel like we're not good enough for God to love us. And if God really knew who we were or what we're really about, that he couldn't possibly love us, he couldn't possibly forgive us. Which, of course, is silly because we know that God knows everything. But we have this experience anyway. We feel like we're not good enough. Or maybe you feel like God could love you and be gracious to you and merciful to you. But you could never be like an A-team Christian. You know, one of those people out there doing the Great Commission and doing these great... We could, I could never be like Moses or Paul or these people in the Bible. We feel like we don't measure up. We feel like we can be a fraud before God. I've got news, good news for you this morning. We're going to look at the story of a man in Scripture who was called by God. And he was a very, 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 very unlikely person to be called into salvation, much less to be used in such an incredible leadership capacity in the early church. The awesome thing about God's story is that this is what God does all the time. He calls unlikely people. He calls weak people. 
After all, near the beginning of the story, it says he called the nation of Israel, not because they were great, not because they were competent or amazing people. He called them actually because they were weak, because he wanted to demonstrate his power through them. And that's what God does. He calls us in spite of ourselves. He calls us. And the solution to this imposter syndrome is not self-help materials. In fact, a lot of those, they get close to getting it, except they leave out the most important component, which is that you are worthy and that you are called by God, but it's in Christ. It's not in yourself. It's in Christ. And so the solution to this feeling as it comes to our faith is to focus on the God who calls. That's why this series is called The God Who Calls. Because it's primarily about him. It's not about us and our calling. He does call us and he does use us. But he calls us in spite of our weaknesses. He calls us despite our challenges and our failures. He is the God who calls. And he is the one who's faithful. So this morning as we look at this incredible story, we're going to see how God turned a terrorist into an evangelist. That's right, I use that word. I don't use words like that flippantly. Paul, Saul, was a religious terrorist. And God converted him to be a great evangelist. He turned the persecutor into a preacher. It's an incredible story. It's a dramatic conversion. I think it can be encouraging to us. Because if God can use a guy like that to do what God used him for, then God can use ordinary people like us to fulfill the work that he has called us to to do. He is the one who calls and he is the one who is faithful. So believe that he wants to use you for incredible kingdom work. Now, part of the importance of a series on calling is for us to understand that as followers of Jesus, we are all called. We've used this language, I think, incorrectly, even within the church. We often think of calling as something that uh, happens to a pastor or a missionary or maybe someone in a noble profession like teaching, right? We label like people who don't make a whole lot and do really hard work. That's the people who are called, right? It's kind of how we characterize it. But the truth is, if you're a follower of Jesus, you have been called. We could think of that as our big C calling. There's, there's two layers here is the way I kind of understand. This is not my original idea, but, but we could think of all of us of having a big C calling. And that is that if you are a follower of Jesus, you are called just like the disciples. And the call is pretty simple. Come, follow me. Turn away, repent, turn away from life as you were living it before and follow me. That's the call. So that is either is your calling or that's the opportunity for you today is to come and to follow Jesus. That's the call of God on your life. But within that, underneath that, there are what we might call little C callings. And that's where we understand things like vocation. And our vocation is part of our calling. It's a little C calling in your life. And that's true whether your work is paid or not. That's true whether it's in your home or in the church or in the marketplace. The work that you do... I think sometimes even especially the volunteer work that you do is part of your vocational calling. That's part of your calling. There are lots of different ways that calling works itself out in our lives in relationships and opportunities that God gives us. That's all part of the call of God in your life. So we share a common calling to follow Jesus. And then within that, there are a lot of different little callings that he gives us. Sometimes even just an opportunity. 
like to go and serve in some capacity, to go across town and, and serve in a school, to go on a mission trip, those types of things, those are part of our little sea calling. But in a way, all of the life of faith, as the New Testament unpacks this idea, is part of our calling to follow Jesus. So if you don't get anything else out of this series, and I hope you get a lot, but if you don't get anything else, get the idea that if you're a follower of Jesus, you're called. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, he's calling you to come and follow him. You're in one of those two camps. So it's all of us. And, and I want to encourage you, use that language. Don't just talk about, well, the pastor's called, the missionary's called. No, we're all called to follow him. You got it? All right. So today's story is about a man named Saul. It's a very important story. Luke includes it three times in the book of Acts. Uh, Saul is his Hebrew name. He's named after the famous first king of Israel, who's also from the tribe of Benjamin, as Paul is. So Saul is his Hebrew name. If you're familiar with him, you probably know him as Paul, which was his Greek name. Okay. Despite contrary opinion, Jesus doesn't rename him on the road to Damascus. Luke actually just gives us both of his names. He uses the name Saul at the beginning of the book of Acts. And then in chapter 13, from that point on, he says, Saul, who's also called Paul. And then he starts to use the name Paul the rest of the book. And that's because for the rest of the book, primarily Paul is preaching to the Gentiles. So it makes sense he would use his Greek name rather than his Hebrew name. He says it's all part of the foundation of, of his life. They're all part of the sovereign foundation of his life that God was working out, preparing him for a specific opportunity. We can understand this idea. You have, some of us have two names or more for different identities. So I'll let you in on something. When I was in middle school and high school, I had a nickname. It was Elmo. Yeah, the Sesame Street character, yeah. So my last name is Elmore, so you can kind of understand how we get there. It's a long story. I had really bad handwriting, especially my cursive. Do they even teach that anymore? I'm not sure. So Elmo, Elmore turned into Elmo, and it became a nickname. Now, I'm not encouraging that we bring it back. If you give me a hard time, whatever. But there are people out there that still know me as Elmo. Some of my best friends from high school. Wasn't something everybody called me, but my best friends. And they still call me that from time to time. So we understand this idea that people know us by different names and they represent a kind of time in our life, a special uh, relationship. And so it is with Saul who becomes Paul. But it's important to represent the transition in his life where he became a new person. He was always Saul and he was always Paul. But he stepped into a new role and a new identity as he becomes known as Paul, he steps into that calling that God had on his life. Now, Saul was born into a Jewish family. He was also a Roman citizen, which is important to how God will work out calling in his life. He was trained as a rabbi. He was also a Pharisee, which means he was probably at least what we might call a middle-class businessman. Most importantly for our focus today, Saul was a persecutor of Christians. He hated Christians. He was part of persecuting them. In fact, he uh, encouraged stoning them and putting them to death. The, the, the first Christian martyr we sometimes think of as Stephen in Acts chapter 7. Paul's right there standing by. If you read that story, there he is encouraging this. And so there's persecution that broke out and began seemingly in the area of Jerusalem. But it starts to spread because Christians leave the area. They say, we're not going to have any of this. They start leaving Jerusalem, leaving Judea and spreading out. But 
it's not enough for Paul to say, okay, good, we got him out of town. No, he wants to stamp out these Christians because he believes they're spreading a lie. And that lie is that Jesus was raised from the dead. He believes they are spreading this blasphemous lie, and he believes that he has a calling from God to destroy this movement. I just want you to understand the picture, because sometimes we can kind of put Paul up on a pedestal. You know, Paul, he wrote so much in the New Testament, wrote so many letters. Paul suffered for Jesus. Let's get a picture of who this man was as Saul, the terrorist. Because you've got to understand that before you see how amazing it is, what happens. So as we look at the sovereign foundations of Saul, Paul's calling, at the beginning of Acts chapter 9, we see that he was, in verse 1, still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. And he wants to get clearance to go after them. And he is on the way to this place, Damascus, on the way to go and to persecute the Christians to try to stamp out this blasphemous movement when he has an encounter with the risen Lord. Now let's get this in mind. Paul doesn't make a decision to follow Jesus. He doesn't logically conclude that he should follow Jesus. He's not exploring Christianity. That is how some people come to faith. But he is doing just the opposite. He's trying to destroy Christianity. And God, in his sovereign mercy, appears to him. Paul's conversion is a powerful example of the truth that we read about in Romans chapter 5, verse 8. We spend a lot of times in Romans, right? You guys ought to know it a little bit better. In Romans 5, 8, it's one of my favorite verses in all the scriptures. It says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Still sinners, actively sinning. In the midst of our rebellion, when we were going the opposite way, because that's the spiritual truth, is that we're all like Saul. We're all rebels. We're all going the wrong direction. And we don't just in and of ourselves decide that we want to follow Jesus. The sovereign mercy of God has to draw us into repentance. Our eyes have to be opened to see that Jesus is real. And we're all saved completely by grace. And we see in the story of Paul that God can and does save the worst of sinners. After all, Jesus himself said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. And so it's a good reminder to us, as Tim Keller has said, that the church is a hospital for sinners, not a museum for saints. It's a hospital for sinners. Oh, that that would be our posture, the way that God would use us to reach out to a hurting and broken world that is lost in darkness. So Saul's been involved in the persecution of Christians. He's on the way to Damascus, and a bright light from heaven appears. And this time, the bright light is not an angel, as it often is in the Bible, but it is Jesus himself. Look at verse 5. Saul asks, Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. Now try to imagine what Paul is experiencing in this moment. I mean, he walks away not eaten for a couple days and blinded. I think it's partly just because the sheer shock of this experience. And imagine when he's thinking and how he's processing this over these couple of days as he's waiting for the next step to unfold. He has dedicated his life 
to stamping out a falsehood that he has just suddenly been confronted with the reality that he was wrong. He's been trying to prove that Jesus didn't really rise from the dead. So Jesus was like, okay, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to show up to him. I mean, this doesn't happen a whole lot. It's pretty, this is a pretty amazing moment. Not, not just, we're not just going to send an angel to give him the real deal. We're gonna, I'm going to come down and reveal to this man. And the only way you can explain this story is to say that it's true. Because otherwise... Persecutors don't become evangelists. They don't become preachers. Paul is confronted with the risen Christ. It's worth noting that Jesus doesn't unfold the whole path up front. Just like Abram, who was called to step out in absolute faith, God said, go to a place that I'm going to show you. Similarly, we see here with Paul this idea that he gets part of the plan. He says, I want you to go into town and wait. And that's how it is in our calling, isn't it? God gives us one step at a time. There are times when we wish he would give us the whole plan, when he would just show, God, just show me what the next year of my life is going to look like. God, would you just, just give me the five-year plan? And we think we want that. The truth is, we can't handle it. We can't. Because if we saw five years ahead, we would, I mean, we would be completely overwhelmed. Probably scourged. There's going to be some bad stuff that happens in the next five years. That's just life on planet Earth with sin. We don't get the whole plan because we're human and we're finite. And we can't handle the truth, right? We can't see that far ahead. We just have to ride the waves one wave at a time. So this summer, uh, we got to go to the beach. And my daughter, my oldest is five now. And so she was able to actually go out in the ocean with me. The last time we went to the beach, um, she was three. And so it was like playing in the sand and just doing the like edge of the water thing. This time she wanted to go out. So we got one of these little raft things. And so what she loved doing was just sitting on top of the raft and then letting me kind of control it and keep things going. And she could just ride the waves, you know? And we would go and find the perfect spot where they weren't crashing on us, but they were kind of forming and you could see it. And and it was fun. It, it was great. And the cool thing about it was, you know, she just got to ride the waves. And she could tell, like she could see the waves that were beginning to form where we were. And she could, you know, kind of feel that intensity, like the water's starting to, you know, kind of suck under and it's building up. And, and every, it was like, every time it was like, she was anticipating it coming. And I just kept telling her, hey, just ride the waves, girl. I got this. You know, I got this. And I was thinking about the experience of uh, trying to get out to the part where there was calmer waters. And, and I would just carry her through the crashing waves because she's not at the point where she enjoys that part of the experience. Some people never get there. And uh, so I would carry her through to that spot. And I was just thinking about the father and, 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 and my point is not that there aren't waves because sometimes the waves come crashing down on us. But the point is, that's the way we have to trust one wave at a time. Each one, each one, each challenge that comes, each new thing that comes at you, you've got to ride the waves. And you've got to trust. And he's, he's the one who's in control of it all. And he's better than just like some dad out there. Trying, you know, he's controlling all the waters and we could extend the metaphor. He's in control of it all. But he gives us 
the details as we go. And so even with Paul, he doesn't say, hey, Paul, by the way, let me tell you what your life's going to look like. No, he says, I want you to get up and go to a place, and then I'm going to send somebody, and I want you to wait. It's also intriguing. I find it intriguing that Jesus doesn't lay hands on Paul and say, be saved and commission him. Jesus doesn't do that. You ever think that's interesting? I mean, why doesn't, why doesn't Jesus just lay hands on him? Right there. Don't totally know, but I think we're going to see as we move through the story that God chooses to use other people within our calling. He makes that choice because he wants us to see that we're called by the family into the family. And it's within the context of the community of faith that we live out our calling. And so as we continue moving through the story, we see the importance of the supporting roles of calling. So in verse 10, we're introduced to a man named Ananias. Now, this is not the same Ananias from the couple Ananias and Sapphira from Acts chapter 5, if you're familiar with the book of Acts. That Ananias is not with us, shall we say, if you've read the story. If you haven't, wait till like a really good, strong day of faith and go read it. It's pretty wild. This is a different, a different Ananias in chapter 9. And God tells this brother, Ananias, to go to Saul and to lay hands on him, essentially to restore him and to call him to serve Jesus. It's a good reminder to us that God uses other people as part of our calling story. Now, I've used the term supporting role here because, of course, we want to know and recognize that God is the one who calls us. So he's always the main character playing the main role, but he chooses to use us as his people to play important supporting roles in calling people to faith and in shaping their ongoing calling of discipleship. Our calling is about restoring us into the community so that we serve the community because our calling is for the community. Your calling is not just so that you feel better about yourself or you feel excited that God is using you in a big way. Yeah, there is something amazing about being used by God. But we don't want to individualize this so much. We want to remember that God calls us and gifts us and gives us experiences, some good and some bad. He gives us all of that to shape us into people who can serve others with the call that he has placed on our life. So if you're a follower of Jesus, you have an important supporting role to play in others' stories. Not only in calling them to faith, but in the ongoing work of becoming more like Jesus. So we are called to invest in other people. It's a very simple concept. But I want to encourage us as a church. We need to continue to elevate the importance of this. In particular, as followers of Jesus, we have a calling to invest in the next generation of the church, which is really the current generation, right? They're the church of today. And sometimes I'll hear older people uh, that are expressing fear about uh, the future of our community or of our nation, f- fear about the future of the church, and, and, and they're so worried and, and discouraged by what they see in younger people. And some of that is probably justified. But here's my challenge to you. If that's your position, which is probably all of you to some degree or another, my challenge to you is then invest in them. You worried about the future? Invest in the future. 
You worried about the state of young people and their knowledge or lack of knowledge about who Jesus is? Invest in them. Pray for them. Serve them. Support those who are serving them. Encourage those who are serving them. Get personally involved in serving them and invest in them. You worried about the future? Invest in it. That's my challenge. Because that's what we can do. We can either sit around and worry about it and complain about it, or we can be involved. And God is calling us to invest in our kiddos and our kids and our students. I know, I know in particular, she didn't ask me to say this, but I know that we still need people to serve in our Kirk Kiddos ministry, which is the youngest. It's birth up through pre-K. I have one in that area. I have one that's leaving that area. I can't believe it. I'm not going to talk about it. I'm going to make me cry. <laughs> and pretty much every week, they don't have enough people to do it. I'm not, I'm not trying to guilt you. I'm not trying to get you to serve in some way the Lord hasn't called you to. I'm just telling you the opportunity is there. And they're amazing. And they're a lot of fun. It takes a lot of energy, but you only have to do it for one hour. So, I mean, you can do anything for an hour, right? I leave that to you. We play a supporting role in the calling and the shaping. What an incredible opportunity that God would use us as his people to shape the calling. That God would use us to change someone's life for eternity. There's no greater opportunity out there. I don't even have to sell it to you. It should be pretty self-evident. That's what we're in the business of doing as the people of God. What an amazing opportunity we have. Now I'm going to turn a little bit of a different direction because we see in this story a little detail, not a major point of emphasis, but we see the surprising suffering of calling. Did you notice that in there? That's the next unusual thing that happens in this story is what God tells Ananias about Saul, Paul's calling. We would expect Saul's commissioning to go like this. God is going to use you in a powerful way, brother, and he is going to give you great influence, and he is going to cause you to prosper, and he's going to give you a platform, and you're going to have lots of followers on social media, and you're going to have lots of resources, and people are going to come behind you, and you're going to have an amazing ministry, and it's going to be really successful. And But that's not the first thing we're told. And I says, hey, go, you're going to call this brother into faith. And I'm giving you insight. I'm telling you, he's going to be used in a powerful way by God to call people unto myself. And also, FYI, P.S., I'm going to show this man how much he must suffer for my name. It's kind of weird. I started thinking about it nine years ago when I was looking for a position in pastoral ministry. And I can tell you not. One single job description began with, let us show you how much you will suffer in the name of Jesus as you shepherd this congregation. Nobody's that honest. We say this is an amazing opportunity for this unique and growing church. But there is a suffering that comes with following Jesus. Now, with that, Jesus also is the one who said, Take my burden upon you because it's light. My yoke is light. He says, if you come, I'll give you a rest. But the truth is, and we all know it, that following Jesus doesn't mean that life's all of a sudden going to be easy. So as a follower of Jesus, I've told you guys this before, number one, it means that you're not exempt from just the normal suffering of life. So you're going to have to go through hard things. 
Not everybody's going to have the same hard things or the same measure of them, but life is just hard for now. And as a follower of Jesus, there's in some ways an added layer of suffering that can come with that. Jesus said, in this world, you're going to have trouble. He also said, blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. So, not very good salesman, because I'm here to tell you that there is a unique suffering that comes with following Jesus. Now, the good far outweighs the bad, okay? So that's what I'm going to tell you. He'll never give you anything beyond what he will give you the grace to go through. And not everybody has the same kind of suffering. Some people today are like Stephen and they're being murdered for their faith. That's reality every day. People dying for their faith. Many of us probably are not likely to have that as part of our calling. Praise the Lord. That's a good thing. I'm not saying that I want that. I'm not saying you're a better Christian because you suffer for Jesus. I'm just telling you the real deal is that there is a kind of suffering that we should expect as a follower of Jesus. And that is that people will misunderstand you. People will misrepresent you. Some of you may have experienced rejection or even ridicule because of your faith. I know that the younger generations right now are certainly going to experience that more than any of us because they will not be the majority. We already know that, right? My generation, the one below me, we are not in the majority as Christians in our generation. So those things are going to change. And I just think it's fair to understand that there will be that suffering. I don't say that to scare you, but to prepare you. And for you to have those conversations with the younger people in your life. And, and I know for some of you as well, I know that you have probably been un treated unfairly because you're a Christian, etc. Now, it's important to note that Jesus doesn't say, blessed are you uh, when people don't like you because you're actually just being a jerk, <laughs> right? And there can be that. No, it's when people are treating you unfairly because of the name of Jesus. If you're being kind and simply standing for what you believe in, then there can be a suffering that will come with that. And we can endure that because we can know that God is with us. He will help us ride the waves. He will give us the grace. He will give us the strength. But there's part of following Jesus that involves a hardship. Jesus said, pick up the cross, not the cross, but your cross. Deny yourself and follow me. Let's understand that there is a very radical nature to that in the midst of our very ordinary calling to follow Jesus. There's also a joy and a peace that comes in serving the Lord. There's a wholeness to our lives. There's a substance. There's a joy that comes in, even in the midst of that suffering, if we know that we are doing it in the name of Jesus. As we follow him, he will fill our lives with good things and rich life, but it's not always easy. And we know that. And it's better to be honest in church. Can we be honest in church? Is that okay? Finally, we end with this little bit of an uptick here. And that is we see the spirit empowerment of calling. And Ananias went to the house and he entered it. And he placed his hands on Saul and he said, Brother Saul, 
The Lord, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And he was baptized. And those things often in the New Testament were symbols of conversion, of that transforming experience, the receiving of the Holy Spirit and baptism. And so I want to talk just a minute about being filled with the Spirit, because our callings demand that we be filled with the Spirit. And there is an initial filling of the Spirit that comes at conversion. I believe that all believers have the Holy Spirit. We get the Holy Spirit, the fullness of the Spirit. But yet Paul also talks later about this reality of being ongoingly filled with the Spirit. So we're to be filled with the Spirit, and yet we're to live into the reality of the fullness of the Spirit in our life every single day. What does that look like? Well, it's... Nothing fancy. It's the spiritual disciplines. How do we get filled with the Spirit of God? We fill our lives with God's presence. We worship Him as, as individuals. We worship Him together with other people. We, we surround our lives with other Spirit-filled people who will speak the truth of God's Word into our life. We surround ourselves and we center our life on God. That's how we're filled with the Spirit. And there's no short track to get there. And in fact, it requires an ongoing filling of the Holy Spirit to live out the calling that he has placed upon us. You can't store it up. You can't stockpile it. At least that's my experience. I mean, I can't. I'm just I'm just giving you my experience at this point. I can't. I don't know if I have chapter and verse to prove this. But my experience is you can't just go to like a conference and get a lot of the Holy Spirit. And then you're like, you're good for a year. It doesn't seem to work that way. It's like sleep. We wish we could sleep five extra hours on Saturday and then use one hour every day, Monday, Tuesday, to supplement the fact that we don't get enough sleep. Scientists tell us it doesn't work that way. You can't pay off the debt of of a lack of sleep. And so I think I could argue generally from Scripture that we must be filled with the Holy Spirit daily to center our lives, to be filled with, with his presence in order to live into the callings that he has placed upon us. We're living in a complex and confusing and challenging time. A lot of people are feeling, uh, probably everybody, overwhelmed. And sometimes when we get overwhelmed, we freeze up because we don't know what to do. So what do we do when we don't know what to do? It's a good question. What do we do? We don't know what to do. Well, biblically, we do the things that we know we're supposed to do regardless of the circumstances we're in. And that's what I think we need to press into right now as a church. Overwhelming, perplexing times in our world, in our country, in our community. And I think we need to lean into our calling, which is simply to follow Jesus. And do what he did. What did he do? He stayed connected to the Father in prayer. He knew the Word. He is the Word, but that's a whole other complex thing. (laughs) He centered his life on doing the will of the Father. It's not easy, but it's pretty straightforward. That's how we're going to live into the calling that he has for us as individuals and as a church, is to be faithful and to do the things that he's calling us to. To do as a pastor, here's what that means. You know, I had somebody there today asking about what's your vision for the church moving forward. Really, it's like, okay, what ideas do you have? Because nobody knows what we're doing right now, right? 
Nobody's blogging about, okay, how the church is going to be successful 10 years from now. It's new, it's new territory. And certainly I've got some ideas, but I had this moment yesterday also where I was just praying about this idea and I'm like, Lord, what is it? And, and I didn't need to go on sabbatical for two months to, to figure this out, although it was great. But he said to me, he said, well, Aaron, what are, you, what are you called to do? What are you supposed to do? What do you do when you don't know what to do? I said, well, the Bible says that I'm supposed to pray and I'm supposed to preach the word. That's what I'm supposed to do as a pastor. I'm supposed to guard my life and guard the flock. It's the things that are there you know to do. Now, I think, I think God's going to give us some incredibly creative ideas of how to move forward. And we're already doing some of those things. That's what Fortulsa is about. This is the idea of being for you, being for the world. We've got ideas. But for you and for me, at the end of the day, it keeps coming back to the same things that we know we're supposed to do. So if you don't know what to do, do the things you know you're supposed to do. And keep doing them with faithfulness and consistency. Be filled with the Spirit. Live into your calling. There's a lot of detail within that, but broadly what it means is answer the call to Jesus who said, come, follow me. That's what you're supposed to do. Will you join me as we pray together? Father, we thank you that you are the God who calls. And you have called us into your family. And I pray this morning, if there's anyone who has not answered that call to follow Jesus, that you would work in their heart and their life. Give them the courage to reach out and to seek you. And I pray that they would have an encounter with you. Maybe it's not the same as Paul had on the road to Damascus, but I pray that you would reveal yourself to them to show them that you are real and you you were raised from the dead and that makes all the difference. And God, I pray for all of us who have been walking with you, some for many, many years, that you would revive us and refresh us in our commitment to follow you as people who are called by you to be used by you. God, would you use us as a church in powerful ways to live into the unique calling you have for us in this time and place in history. Would we not listen to any other voice or any other distraction or any other discouragement, but would we be a church that is filled by your spirit and doing your work in the name of Jesus and for the glory of you, the Father. Amen.